Well, I saw uh, this week, actually, that Disney is putting out a live, a, a live action version of Pinocchio. Have y'all seen that? That's, I know there's Disney people and non-Disney people, but uh, that's a beloved story, uh, the, a live action uh, uh, remake of the movie that Walt Disney produced in 1940. Now, if you don't know about the story of Pinocchio, uh, Pinocchio is a, is a wooden puppet who comes to life, uh, but he's still wooden, and he has no conscience. So there's a, in the story, there's a blue fairy that appoints a cricket named Jiminy Cricket. You all know Jiminy Cricket. Jiminy Cricket is appointed to function as the conscience of Pinocchio. It's an interesting idea, isn't it, to think about walking around and doing things and having your conscience uh, outside of your body, uh, much less in the form of a cricket. That would be really weird. But imagine that Jiminy Cricket had to be called as a witness to stand and testify about Pinocchio. Imagine if your, your conscience was called to witness for or against you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12, even to chapter 2, verse 4, Paul is basically telling us that he is calling his conscience to bear witness about the motives behind his behavior. He's calling his conscience to the witness stand, and he's saying, this is what's going on in my heart that is driving my behavior toward you, Corinthians as he's writing this letter to the church there in Corinth. And then later he calls God as his witness against him if he's not telling the truth. So if you'll remember, Paul had a somewhat tumultuous relationship with this church in Corinth. Now apparently what is happening, and he's getting, uh, getting this out of the way right at the beginning of the letter, is that there are some who are calling his character into question because he had not been back to see them since he had made what he called a painful visit. So remember, the Apostle Paul planted the church there in Corinth. He went away, things got out of hand. They asked him questions, he wrote a letter. He came apparently at some point and made a visit to them that was not pleasant. They were out of line, and he let them know it, and it was apparently painful for both Paul and for the church. And so some of them were saying, well, where is Paul? Why has he not come back to see us? Because he said he was coming back, and he's not come back. This is the gist of what Paul is saying in this passage. He says, hey, as we read last week, we've had a lot of trouble in Asia. Our ministry here in Asia what he's been there in Ephesus, has been very difficult. It's been so difficult that we nearly died. And I wanted to come and see you, but you need to understand it just hasn't worked out. And yes, I did want to visit you, but I decided in the end it wouldn't be best for me to come visit you for your sake. To put it more succinctly, maybe this is the sermon in a sentence. Hey, some of you guys think I'm being wishy-washy. I'm not. That's basically what Paul has to tell them. So 
This is an easy passage for us to understand, isn't it? Of all the sermons, perhaps in the book of 2 Corinthians that we're going to uh, touch on, this one will really be easy for us to understand because all of us have been misunderstood. All of us have been misunderstood in some way, and how many of us have been misunderstanders in some way? I'm not sure if that's actual word. But I certainly know that I've been a misunderstander, and I certainly know that I have been misunderstood. Why? Because I'm a sinner. And you're a sinner. And eventually, our sin is going to make it into our relationship with one another, and it's going to make our relationship difficult. That's what's happening here. So we can really understand that when we're dealing with Bible, we're not just dealing with all these ideas up in the air that we can't relate with. This is so relatable. This relates to everything that we go through. So here's what I want to tackle this passage. It's a little bit long, but the explanation, again, is very simple. You'll understand this once I point out what he's saying to you. I'll just kind of go into explanation mode here as we go through the text. And then I want to make three applications at the end before we vote on our deacons. So in verse 11, Paul has just asked for prayer. He says, listen, I want you to pray for us that many will be blessed by our ministry. And then he goes on in verse 12 to defend the actions of him and his companions. He says, our boast, speaking of his companions, our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience is this. Our consciences are being called to the witness stand, and here's what they say. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and we have behaved supremely. That means first. We've put you first. We've behaved supremely toward you. Our behavior is simple, he says. Our behavior is sincere. Our behavior is gracious by God's grace, and our behavior has been in your best interest. Look at verse 13. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast in you. Guys, he's saying, I want you to understand what we're doing. Ministry's hard, isn't it? Ministry is difficult to do ministry. It's difficult to do ministry at a church. It's difficult to do ministry at work. It's difficult to do ministry in your home. It's difficult to do ministry in your friendships. And sometimes you just have to say, guys, listen, hear my heart. That's what Paul's saying. And here's how he explains himself. He says, we're not trying to hide anything from you. What, what we've told you is the truth. The, what we've represented to you is the way it is. There's a phrase, WYSIWYG. Has anybody heard WYSIWYG before? Does anybody know what it means? What, uh, somebody said it over here. What you see is what you get. As Christians, we should be WYSIWYG, shouldn't we? What you see is what you get. Paul says, what you are seeing in us is the truth. We're not hiding anything from you. We're always the same. There's no guile. There's no cunning. We are walking the talk that we're talking. He said, I want you to understand this. What you see is what you get. And you're one of these days, because you're going to understand our hearts, you're going to boast in us just like we're going to boast in you. That's gracious language. 
He's saying to these people that are calling him out, saying that he's not being honest, he says, one day you're going to rejoice in us just as we're going to rejoice in you. Paul's preserving that relationship even during something hard. He's working here. You realize sometimes you've got to do that in your friendships? Sometimes you've got to be the bigger man. Is Paul wrong here? No, he's the righteous one. This church is a mess. They're accusing the Apostle Paul of talking out of both sides of his mouth. And yet, what is he doing? He's making the relationship work. It's a lesson for us there, isn't it? He says, because I'm sure of this, because I'm sure of our relationship, I wanted to come to you first. So you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. He says, guys, listen, I was leaving Ephesus, going to Greece. I was going to swing by and see you. And then on the way back to take the offering to the poor saints in Jerusalem that were starving, I was going to swing back a second time so we could have a double blessing of meeting and fellowshipping together. I was going to come twice. That's what he says. And then in verse 17, he says, well, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. He says, I didn't say yes and and mean no. He said, when I said yes, I meant yes. And when I changed my plans, I had to change my plans and said no. For the Son of God... Jesus Christ, look at verse 19 there, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, the three of them there, was not yes and no, but in him it's always yes. He's bringing some doctrine in there. What he's essentially saying is, guys, we mean what we say. When we said we were going to visit you, and when we had intended to come visit you twice, we really did intend when we made those plans to do it. And so what's happening? Why does he bring in Jesus in verse 19? Because apparently what was happening is they said, oh, Paul, you know that guy, writes big, but when he gets here, he's not very impressive. He's not a very good preacher. Peter and Apollos, way better preachers than him. I even saw Jesus once. He was way better than Paul, too. You think about the way at the beginning of the first letter to Corinthians, how they all had their factions based on their favorite preachers. And so some of those guys who were questioning Paul, they said, hey, you know these guys, Paul, Silvanus, Timothy? They said they were going to come here. They didn't come. They don't tell the truth. They don't tell the truth about their plans. Guess what else they're not telling the truth about? The gospel. And so Paul brings it in here, and he says, in Christ, it's always yes. And so we look at more theology in verse 20. For all the promises, now this is what's great. If they hadn't had this argument, we wouldn't get this great verse. This is a verse you can nail to your heart. Listen to this. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. All the promises that God has ever made are yes in Jesus. That's good news, isn't it? That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to the glory, uh, to God for His glory. He says, all the promises of God are yes in Him. And so when God says yes, we don't say no. When God says yes, we say amen. And it is God, look at verse 21. Okay, underline the words of what it says God is doing for these apostles. It is God who establishes us with you and has anointed us 
and who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He says, guys, the promises of God are not yes and no. The promises of God are yes, and we say amen. And we're the leaders. I'm the apostle. And I can tell you that it is God who has established us with you. God ordained that we would be the ones who planted this church in Corinth. The reason you're here and the reason you know Jesus is because he sent us here to plant this church. He established us with you. From the foundation there. He anointed us. Okay? He, he put his seal on us. God has approved of us through this anointing of the Spirit and the seal of the Spirit and the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Did you know the Spirit is also in your heart as a guarantee? When, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when Oakland puts her trust in Jesus Christ, something amazing happens. God takes out the heart of stone. He puts in the heart of flesh. He puts His Spirit inside that new believer. And that Spirit inside the new believer is a seal. It is a guarantee. Maybe some of you guys in the past have, have done real estate transactions. Now, when you go and you make the real estate transaction, you make a contract. And when you make the contract, there's a part of the contract that says earnest money. You all remember that on the trek form? It's on the trek form, right? It says earnest money. There's a whole paragraph there for the Texas real estate form. So what you do is you put some earnest money down. And what is the purpose of that earnest money? It goes way back in the English common law. But the, but the purpose of the earnest money is you put in the, the, the legal brain trust is over here. But we put the earnest money down to show that the rest of the money is coming. What, what are we saying? I'm earnest about this transaction. I'm going to give you this money now, and it's going to be a proof that the rest of it's coming. Well, that Holy Spirit in our heart, that's a guarantee that all the rest is coming when the kingdom comes. All the rest is coming when Jesus comes back. All the rest is coming when we rise from the grave to meet him in the air. And what are these Corinthians doing? Here, they have the apostle. He's loving them. He's writing them. He's been established to, to, uh, by God to lead their church. God's anointed him. He's put a seal on him. He's put the Holy Spirit in his heart. And they're sitting there condemning him and questioning him and undermining his ministry. John MacArthur says, Paul says to them, guys, look. In verse 21, he's, in verse 22, he says, guys, uh, if you cut us off the way you're trying to, you're basically cutting off the branch that you're sitting on. You wouldn't be sitting on this branch if God hadn't established this. And so can you, you can imagine that word picture of sitting on the branch of the tree. Here's the tree and here's the branch and I'm sitting on it and I'm just sawing away my support. And he says, that's what you guys are doing. And then he says in verse 23, much stronger language, look at 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you. Why did I not come? I was going to come twice. Why did I not come? It was to spare you. And you realize Paul was just going around visiting all these churches. He could have made his way through there. It wouldn't have been hard for him to keep his word other than just if there was natu uh, natural issues or couldn't catch a boat or something like that. He was intending to go. Why didn't he go? To spare you. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. What's he saying? 
I think what Paul is saying here is I didn't have to come see you to straighten this out. He says, I didn't want to come get on to you because I'm not the Lord of your faith. I'm not the Lord of your church. Who's the Lord of their faith and the Lord of their church? Jesus Christ. I didn't want to come get on to you. I'm not your Lord. I don't dictate to you how your faith progresses, but I'm working with you for your joy. I'm not here just to get on to you guys. I'm here for your joy so you can stand firm in your faith. That's an interesting verse there to ponder for those of us in leadership, isn't it? Especially in the church. Paul says, hey, I didn't come. I don't want to get in the way of <laughs> the way God's going to work and convict you. But he was trusting in the Lord to work. He was trusting in the Lord through the power of the Holy Spirit to give these people joy and a firm faith. So he says in chapter 2, verse 1, I made up my mind not to come visit you, not to make another painful visit. That last visit was so rough, and you didn't respond to me. It, we were both hurt. So what did Paul do? He just gave it to the Lord. He said, I'm not going to go make another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one I've pained? I want you guys to make me glad. He says, and I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears not to cause you pain. His purpose was not to cause them pain, but to let them know the abundant love I have for you, or he had for them. Paul wanted them to know, I love you abundantly. His heart was for that people. His heart was for that church. And so he didn't come because he didn't want it to be painful to them. He was actually caring for them by not coming. And they were questioning his motives. And so this is Paul basically defending his motives, clearing the air to let them know why he changed his plans. Three applications of this text. Number one, for us, as we understand what this text meant as they read it, as they could have said, yes, Paul's not wishy-washy, Paul's not lying to us, Paul's being sincere, Paul's being the real deal, what can we learn in 2022 here in Alney from this passage about this church and their leader that are having trouble 2,000 years ago. We can learn something. Number one, the importance of sincerity and a clear conscience in the way we deal with people. We need to be a sincere people. We need to have a clear conscience in the way we deal with people. Here's the quote. Building integrity, building a reputation takes what? Years. Possibly decades. But how long does it take to lose your rep reputation and your integrity? One second. One second. Tell the truth. It's important to be sincere, to keep a clear conscience. Tell the truth. Tell it to the people. Don't say yes if you mean no. Don't say I'm going to pray about it if you're not. Treat everybody the same. Now let me explain that one. Some of y'all try to treat everybody the same, and it's kind of a disaster. Uh, treating everyone the same doesn't mean uh, that you just tell it like it is. That's how somebody, you know, I just tell it like it is. 
all right? Some people you have to deal with a little bit differently, okay? Because if, if everybody just went around telling it like it is, you could come off off-putting, mean, and unloving. Some people can handle more truth than others. So if you tell some people the truth, you know what it does? It crushes them. You have to be very careful how you tell people the truth. You have to cultivate a relationship where you've earned the right to speak into someone's life. But when I say treat everyone the same, here's what I mean. We can treat everybody with love. It may look different, but we can treat everyone with love. We can treat everyone with joy, with peace, with patience, with kindness, with goodness, with gentleness, with faithfulness, and with self-control. When I was in college, I worked at a company, and it was, the work environment was awful. That's the worst I've ever been in in my life. And I was young. I was only 19 years old. And it was catty. It was backbiting. There was always blame shifting going on. It was a very unhealthy work environment. And here's what would happen. There'd be three people sitting in the, or three people in the room. And, or maybe four or five people in the room. It didn't really matter. And one person would leave the room, and you know what would happen? The people in the room would talk about the person who just left the room. And it happened every time. Someone leaves the room, and everybody would talk about them. Say bad things about them. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, what, I, I, I don't know what to do. It made me feel extremely uncomfortable. But thankfully, I was an idealistic college student. So what I decided I was going to do is whenever someone left the room, I was going to say something nice about them. So when they would leave the room, I'm like, man, her tennis shoes are awesome. I mean, some of these people, it was hard to find something nice to say. <laughs> Maybe I'm being that way now. But, I, but you, you know, you can do it. You can find something nice to say and something encouraging to say. And of course, I would say something. I would say, you know, oh, that, that's great. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. But I determined that I was not going to fall into that trap of just being negative. And being insincere with people. Because I knew one thing. You know what happened when I left the room? I didn't want to be like that. I knew there's plenty, and all they probably everything they said was true. But be sincere and have a clear conscience. Don't fall into that nonsense. Teachers, stay out of the teacher's lounge. That was the best advice Dr. Nesbaum gave us at Howard Payne. She said, It's a den of vipers. She said, You stay out of there. I never went in, ever. I never went into the teacher's lounge. I knew nothing good goes on in there. I'd make my copies if I had to and just get out. But be sincere. Keep a clear conscience. Number two, for a Christian, as we see in this passage, our integrity, or maybe we should say it this way, Christ's integrity in people's eyes is tied to our integrity. Now, is it actually? No. Christ is never going to uh, suffer from any lack of integrity. But in the eyes of the world, as we talked about in Sunday school, our integrity or Christ's integrity in the eyes of others is tied to our integrity. So the way people will view Christ as part of our witness as a believer, they will impute to Christ whatever feeling they have about our integrity. Right, wrong, or indifferent, that's what people do. When we take up our cross and follow Jesus... When we're justified, 
When we're adopted as sons and daughters of God, we are joined to Christ. We are in union with Christ. He identifies, I mean, this should blow you. I mean, y'all should be like standing up and shouting. This is amazing, right? When you get saved, you identify with Christ, but he also identifies with you. That's why when he was persecuting, uh, when, when uh, Paul was persecuting Christ, Christ, uh, the church, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? Paul, he was going after the people, and Jesus said, you're going after me. That's how much Christ identifies with you. That's a doctrine of the union with Christ. And the amazing thing is, is God chose you to be in union with him before the foundation of the world, and you're going to be in union with him forever. So you've actually been in union with Christ forever in some sense. It's amazing. I know it doesn't seem like it's amazing <laughs> based upon your response. <clears throat> I, saw, I, just, I read a story this week. Said uh, it went to a preaching conference. That's a bunch of preachers at this preaching conference. I think it's what it was, a, some kind of special conference. They gave everybody a balloon with helium in it. And I said, all right, when the preacher's up there and he's going and you start to feel joy in your heart, now these people were not ameners. They weren't shouters. So they gave them the balloons. They said, when you feel that joy in your heart, you just let that balloon go and let it hit the ceiling. And then when the sermon was over, half of them still had their balloons. So let's, let's determine we're going to feel some joy in our heart. We hear these wonderful truths of God's Word, that we are in union with Jesus Christ. That's the great news. But here's the sobering thing about that truth, is that our dealings with others will reflect Christ's dealings with them in their mind. We're told the story of Billy Graham when he preached in Wembley Stadium, a huge stadium in London, England. And there were tens of thousands of people coming every night to hear Billy Graham speak. And one of the pastors, a famous uh, Anglican rector there named John Stott, he asked himself, he said, why are all these churches empty around here? But by the tens of thousands, they're coming to hear Billy Graham. And he concluded that Billy Graham was the first transparent and sincere preacher the people had ever heard. So the opportunity we have right now, we live in a godless nation. We live in a nation that is uh, heading for the cliff, morally speaking. This world in just about every area of, of uh, prominence is devoid of honest, transparent, sincere men and women of integrity than ever before. It just doesn't seem like it matters anymore, does it? Nothing is honest. And if you want proof of that, scroll through, ask your kids, say, show me the Instagram. Some of y'all never seen the gram. Say, show me the Instagram. It's a social media platform. It's, it's visual. It's not words primarily, it's pictures. Scroll through it. It's all lies. Every image on there is not the truth. And it doesn't seem to matter to any of the influencers that are on there that all these girls and people out here are comparing their lives to all these lies that are on the social media. And there are people saying, well, my life must be worthless. I must be really ugly because I don't look like this. I'm not as pretty as Kylie Jenner. Kylie Jenner's not even as pretty as Kylie Jenner. That's how these things work. It's all lies. 
But we've got an opportunity in an age of lies to be people who tell the truth. But how damaging is it whenever you're the believer and the person walks out of the room and you join right in? Guy's an idiot. Why can't he get his act together? Whatever. We need to live like Paul. We need to live like Christ with integrity before the people that shows that our witness, I mean, can, what a boast Paul made there, right? We've been established by God for you. Live in such a way that you can boast and you can claim we've been established by Jesus Christ. We're not to boast in anything, but we can boast in Christ. Paul lived with such integrity, he knew he was established by God in his ministry. He was anointed, sealed, and filled with the Holy Spirit. If we'll live that way, when people see our lives, it'll point them to the integrity of Christ. Be sincere in the way you deal with people. Your integrity is tied to the integrity of Christ for right or wrong. Number three, we should be motivated by love. Boy, that last verse that we read, I wrote to you out of affliction, many tears, anguish in my heart, not to cause you pain, but because I love you abundantly. We should be motivated, like Paul is in this passage, by abundant love. And you know who I love to love? I love to, pe- I love, to love people who love me. It's so easy. You're nice to me, Miss Strader. Goodness, she sends me flowers. Only one in my life that's ever done that. I told Ms. Strader one time, I said, well, no one's ever given me flowers. Like the next day, there was a dozen roses on my desk. I was like, I like this. <laughs> See how it feels. Ms. Strader writes me encouraging. You know, so, you know how hard it is for me to love Ms. Strader? It's not hard at all. Because she loves me back. Thank you. <laughs> but you know who it's hard to love? It's the people who don't love you back. And in this, in this uh, church, in this instance, here was the Apostle Paul working on his relationship with the people in this church who had been terrible to him, who had hurt him. Imagine saying that about your church. Can you imagine if I said that? If I had to say I wrote my newsletter to you, I wrote this sermon, and I cried and my heart was anguished? Because our relationship was suffering like that? How hard would that have been for a leader to plant a church, to see the church grow, and then to have the church turn on you? How do you treat people who are awful to you and who reject you? Paul said, I wanted to let you know the abundant love I have for you. I suffered for you. I cried for you. He was motivated by love for people who mistreated him. Was Paul holding a grudge? No. But do we hold grudges? Do we refuse to forgive people? Think of the worst people who don't even deserve it. And then we'll understand the correction we need to see here in the Word of God in our hearts. What kind of example is this that Paul sets? What aspect of the gospel does this point us to? Where is the gospel in our passage? Luke chapter 23, verse 24. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. This is where we see the gospel. 
not only in the faithfulness of God when we are unfaithful. You know, Paul loved this church. He was faithful to this church. They were unfaithful to him. Christ is faithful to you when you're unfaithful to him. We see the gospel there. We see here the example of Christ. We see the gospel. Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. But what did Jesus do? He offered himself up for his enemies. Who are the enemies of God? That was you and me. We were sinners. We were friends with the world and enemies of God. But Christ offered himself up for us, for you and me. That is our only hope of salvation, and that is the example that we are called to live out. So let's consider what our conscience might say if it was called to testify on our behalf. Would it testify to our integrity? Would it testify to our oneness with Christ? Would it testify that we are motivated by love even for those who don't love us back? Or would we dread to hear what our conscience would say about our thoughts and behavior and motives? Truthfully, might be a little bit of both. Right? And so we can rejoice that God is doing something. He's working on me. He's, he's changed me from what I was. But then, when I feel that condemnation, when I say, I've got so far to go before what's going on in the heart lines up with the heart of Christ. And that's where we throw ourselves on the mercy of Jesus and we say that for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Because he, even more perfectly than Paul, is motivated by his great love for us. So what can we do? We can go to the Father in prayer. And we can ask God, please give us the grace to live out this kind of life.